Hi, I'm Marcus Peter Rempel. And I'm Alana Lewandowski. Welcome to The Ferment. Something good is rising. So back in April 2017, Marcus had the opportunity to interview Tim Otto, openly gay co-pastor of Church of the Sojourners in San Francisco. Tim is a dear friend. Uh, I'm so happy to to be sharing him with folks. Uh, I I really love Tim's voice, both, I mean, the sound that comes out of his mouth and also what he has to say. I, Tim Tim has this very like his his voice uh, is he's this very soft, gentle uh, kind of voice, and and yet he has like incredible backbone. He he really stands in a very very interesting place, a brave space, uh, a place that uh, I imagine is sometimes a lonely space because he he's he's a, a openly gay pastor who comes from uh, conservative Baptist roots, and he's he's refused to completely cut off uh, the tribe that he comes from, and uh, and so he he holds this space that stands uh, in between the. Uh, the left-right camps, in just a really interesting way, I think, and uh, with a lot of courage and a lot of love. And so, uh, yeah, once again, I'm I'm just so pleased to be sharing him with folks, and uh, and so curious what what folks are going to make of uh, of what he has to say. In this conversation, they talk about brave space and creating brave space. So I thought it would be apt to read. A poem, which is sort of a a, dec- a declaration by Mickey Scott Bay Jones, who's a an American contemplative activist. So here it is. Together we will create brave space, because there is no such thing as a safe space. We exist in the real world. We all carry scars, and we have all caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love. We have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be, but it will be our brave space together and we will work on it side by side. So that's Mickey Scott Bay Jones. Mm. That's just such a perfect intro and and tribute to, uh, to what Tim is up to. Just a bit of a content warning. Pretty early on in the interview, Tim, uh, he's he's reviewing some of the slurs that were used against him in the schoolyard growing up. And so there's uh, there's some sharper language that finds its way into the conversation than you would hear on uh, on public radio. It comes from a very uh, uh, Tim. I think Tim shares that shares that story in a way that should should soften the blow, but uh, but it's there nonetheless. So if if there's any folks listening that uh, that find that kind of language difficult, we just wanted to give you a heads up uh, before we got there. So here comes Tim Otto on the ferment. Uh, hope you enjoy the episode. Hello. I'm wanting to say welcome to Tim Otto and uh, welcome to our listeners to The Ferment. 
Tim is a, a pastor and a, a writer. He's based in San Francisco, where he's a, he's a leader of an intentional Christian community, or co-leader, I should say, called Church of the Sojourners. He's, uh, he's written a very honest and, and thoughtful account of uh, his life as a gay man who's also a Christian. Uh, the book is called Oriented to Faith, Transforming the Conflict Over Gay Relationships. Is that how it's? Yeah. And full disclosure, he's also a, a dear friend, and I'm, I'm just really pleased to share him with our, uh, our audience. I think I want to start, Tim, by asking you to give a bit of your story before we you have some uh, like rich uh, ideas i think it's good to start with story i i'm i'm someone who's really into big ideas and i'm someone who's married to someone who isn't into ideas but she loves a good story and uh so she listens to uh she listens to audiobooks a fair bit and the other day i i came in the house and she was she was listening to something that was towards the end of this book and as someone who hadn't heard this story so far, like I noticed there were people that were saying nice things and, you know, there's some apologies being offered, but my wife is sitting there and like her eyes are glistening and it's just this, she's having this powerful emotional moment and I'm in the same room like, um, yeah. and, and I think you have, you're someone who the power of what you have to say can only be understood if we have a sense of the story that that preceded it so uh <laughs> so i better have a good story you better have a good story <laughs> yeah well i i mean i can say just a little bit about the context i come out of i was a missionary kid and grew up in uganda east africa until i was about eight and i went to 15 different schools while my parents moved around mm. and did different transitions and they were conservative Baptist missionaries. And um, the conservative is actually not just a descriptor. It's part of the name, like capital C, conservative. Like that's the denomination. That's the denomination, yes. And I grew up knowing that I was different and not really having a name for it. And um, and and getting kicked out of Uganda by Idi Amin and coming back to the States. And I was in third grade and, and I was getting called all kinds of names, and, you know, and, and there are some names, like if you get called a motherfucker, you can kind of think about that and realize, no, I, <laughs> no. Just, I, I don't do that, you know. <laughs> but I was getting called all these other names of gay, queer, sissy, fag, homo. And as I learned wow. what those words meant, I realized, oh, you know, I I think that's who I am. Huh. And of course, these words were being said with yes. just tons of contempt. I mean, you know, I went to a rural high school, and, and I think the worst thing you could call another guy was gay. Yeah. And, and so it just created all of this self-loathing in me and a ton of shame. Um, and I... I we talked a little last night, and then part of what I said was Anne Lamott's phrase of just, I ended up feeling like I was the shit around which the world revolved. I'm cussing a lot. Oh, oh, yeah, that's okay. fine. Okay. No problem. <laughs> okay. Um, but just kind of that combination of of self-loathing and at the same time desperately trying to find ways to medicate that self-loathing 
by feeling superior to other people. And that's, huh. I don't know, I think that's kind of a human dilemma. Yeah, yeah. Ways. Huh. Well, that's interesting. I, I was a missionary kid, too, in Germany. Mm. And, uh, I mean, I, well, I, I did. I did get called, like, I dressed a little bit differently. And, and uh, yeah, there were there were a few folks that questioned what, you know, my sexuality, I think. Uh, unlike yourself, it didn't, like, it sort of, it didn't penetrate the same way because it was like, well, no, that's not, not how I'm wired. But uh, But I do remember that. It's interesting that you say that thing about, like, escaping into feelings of moral superiority right. that was yeah i'm pretty sure that's that's how i survived high school yeah um so that's so, so that's that's high school and then and and internalized self-loathing uh and coming to some awareness of of being a gay person um yeah and so i was at this rural high school and just felt very lonely and alienated and so I thought you know the cure for that would be to go to a Christian college and so I went to a Christian college and my sophomore year came out to my best friend the first person I ever came out to and it was very wild because I thought I was probably the only one on this campus of two three thousand people and it turned out my best friend was gay and, huh. you know, I'd love to tell a, a, a happy, heartwarming story of we became best friends. and um, But the truth was we both had just so much self-loathing that our friendship fell apart because we were kind of, we realized that, that the other person was what we detested in ourselves. And... Um, but he was going to therapy, and he told me that I should go to therapy, too. So I started going to therapy. I went to a semester of therapy. And then at the end of that semester, my therapist said, well, you know, I don't really specialize in this. And so there's this group that helps people become straight. And so I went to that group for a year, and I would fast and pray on Sundays. And, you know, the tough thing about trying hard is you, you never know when you've tried hard enough. Like, it would be nice if you would faint or something when you've tried hard right. enough. But but the truth was, you know, you can always try harder, right? And so that was kind of the conundrum I was in. But after giving it the best shot I could at the end of the year, I realized that my orientation hadn't changed. And I'd gotten to know other folks, or about 40 of us at this conservative Christian college. And we had been in small groups, and I realized that, you know, their orientation wasn't changing either. And so at that point, there was kind of a real crisis of faith of, you know, this uh, Jesus magic just isn't working for me. So, yeah, I almost uh, gave up on faith entirely at that point. Huh. So, so but even at that point, like, you're, you're asking more questions about the Jesus magic than about like the legitimacy of the project of trying to not be gay? Well, or... Yeah, I, I mean, I just came to a concrete wall where, like, there's something wrong here. Uh, and so, you know, I, I did have some people in my life and who I respected quite a bit who were saying... You know, things like Jesus isn't the magic fix-it cure um, and that 
Christ is more about redeeming suffering than just waving a magic wand and living the comfortable, pain-free life. And so I think those kinds of things uh, helped me believe that there might be something worth pursuing in Christianity. Yeah, and and I guess I can just say, uh, so uh, yeah, at that at that point, I really started searching and wondering, you know, about how I would live life, and seriously considered just uh, kind of giving up on Christianity and pursuing being gay. But I knew of a little group of folks in San Francisco who were forming this Christian community, and. I traveled around Central America for nine months, and then I'd been a humanities major and didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I I went to San Francisco, uh, ironically enough, not so much to be gay as to, to check out this little <laughs> Christian community. And uh, at one of the first meetings there, I said something like, I'm, I'm gay, um, I'm also a committed Christian, and I have no idea how those go together. And then uh, it was actually a conservative Baptist missionary, Jack Bernard, who came up to me afterwards and said something like, uh, Tim, I don't know what all I think about homosexuality, but I wonder if it isn't a gift to you. And I know you're a gift to us. And that was just kind of a revolution um, to think about you know, is it possible that that this is even something that God has given me and that, you know, that this is a gift? Like, you know, I'm a white male. Um, I, I have just so much privilege. I'm educated. I, huh. I'm well off. Um, but here was this piece of my life where there was this chance for me to because of my own pain in it to have empathy for other people and grow in that. Um, so that I, I think that was one of the, the ways I ended up seeing it as a gift. Huh, interesting. Are there other ways that you've come to see it as a gift over time? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's just something about being queer and being outside the system and realizing, huh, the way the system's constructed doesn't really work for me. And I I see ways it doesn't work for other people as well. And, you know, at the the time there was this, this mantra that homos were destroying the family and... I begin to think about that and, you know, how is it that if I love another dude and, you know, make a commitment to care for him, that that, you know, tears up your family. I just don't get it. So I begin to think, you know, what what is going on here? And it huh. just seemed like a couple things. One, what was it? Clinton, who had the campaign slogan of, it's the economy, stupid. Right. And And just thinking about capitalism and how... It's basically this huge machine, and wherever it needs a cog, it offers you more money and status to to move there. And so it really teaches all of us to be very autonomous. And so people end up cutting off uh, extended family ties 
And that just puts so much pressure on the marriage dyad. And, and so people end up looking for all of their relational needs to be met by this one other person. And I just don't think that's, that's the way we were made. But, but it helped me ask those kinds of questions of what's really going on here? What are the forces at play here that are making family life so tough? And, and part of the answer was, well, it's the way we do our economics. So, yeah, I began to, to think about that and think about all kinds of things, uh, how we structure our politics, you know, how we do church. And, and I think just being queer helps me interrogate this whole system that, that otherwise we just kind of take for granted. Huh. It's, it's fascinating for me to think that, that being made a scapegoat for the failure of marriage drove you as a single gay man to really enter into the questions of like what is it that makes marriage good and what is it that threatens mm-hmm. marriage mm-hmm. um and 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 I think and what is it what is family which is I think that's mm-hmm. that's part of the conversation really at Church of the Sojourners is mm-hmm. is about the the call to family in a way that that makes space for for various folks that don't find uh, a place in the the kind of leave it to beaver nuclear family stereotype. Do you want maybe just say a little bit about Church of the Sojourners in terms of how how you are family to one another there and how some of the some of the practices? Yeah. Yeah, so that little community kind of eventually evolved into this this church called Church of the Sojourners. And I think one of the reasons that I ended up staying, I, I've been there for 30 years now, is that it was a place where I felt well-loved. I mean, I was coming out of this generational ghetto in college where all of my friends were the same age as me. And it, it just seemed so rich to have older mentors and then also kids around and, you know, just the playfulness that they bring. But but even more than, I, I mean, being loved obviously was huge. But I also realized I love loving, that that's hmm. what I'm made for. Hmm. And that this was a place for me to give love to people who needed it. And, you know, community is kind of funny in that I feel like intentional communities often attract people for whom life isn't working. And, you know, my life wasn't working, and that's why I showed up. And I think that's the case for other folks, too. And so a lot of people are attracted uh, to sojourners because of struggling with mental health challenges or with addiction, those kinds of things. But, you know, I think the interesting thing is, is that Christians often hold up, you know, family as the ultimate good. And yet uh, Jesus was just so incredibly hard on yeah. family. You know, he, he looked around at his biological family and said, you know, the people who are really my mother and brothers and sisters are, are those who do God's will. And so he basically redefined family. And, and just more and more in our very fragmented individualist culture, it seems to me that there's a deep need for family. Um, I work part-time as a 
a home health nurse in San Francisco. And San Francisco is so fascinating because it's a very generous, uh, hospitable city. And, and so, you know, in some ways it's tried really hard. Uh, it's still a huge challenge, but it's tried really hard to do well by homeless people. And so hmm. it's, it's built huge buildings to house people, buildings that are actually pretty nice. And I remember recently I was visiting this patient who had moved into one of these new buildings. She was like on the 15th floor. She had this view of the city that, I mean, I think her apartment on the open market would have gone for five or 6,000 a month. And, you know, she had me as a visiting nurse. Um, she had a home health aide who came in daily to help her with things. She had a social worker. She had a psychiatrist who was assigned to her, a primary doctor, um, a payee. I mean, I'm sure the city of San Francisco is spending literally hundreds of thousands on her a year. Hmm. And yet what struck me the most was just this aching loneliness that she lives with. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's just no way the, the, the state can show up and be a family. And that's, I think, the deepest poverty I see in a place mm. like San Francisco. And so I think what we're trying to do in this little community is be a functional, loving family that comes around to people and hopefully heals and and blesses people through offering love but also requiring of people that they they love as well hmm as i'm hearing your story and and also knowing uh some some pieces of your story that we haven't gotten into yet i'm i'm realizing how much you you've really kind of fallen into a vocation that is it's kind of strange territory for Protestants, but that Catholics know fairly well, which is that if you're a gay young man growing up Catholic, a pretty standard vocation is to become a priest mm -hmm. um, and to uh, to become, by virtue of that position, really a, a family convener mm. um, f for this wider family uh, in a way that is more more available uh, to the community than, you know, traditionally married Protestant pastors tend to be. I think there's one of the things that Protestants deal with is that, you know, we can be really hard on our church leaders uh, in terms of the kinds of demands we make of them emotionally and, and otherwise to kind of always be there for us. And, and I know it's, you know, there's a lot of pastors' kids that have some pretty hard stories uh, about being in that sort of second place position to this sort of, you know, someone that everyone else sees as a kind of spiritual giant uh, <laughs> who turns out to be pretty unavailable mm -hmm. to the family system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk to, talk to me about the, the vocation that you've, you've entered into as a, as a celibate leader of the church and, gifts and and uh, trials in the location where you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, traditionally, my understanding is Catholics have made the distinction that married people are 
called to love one other person exclusively and narrowly. And the vocation to celibacy is not a vocation to not love. It's a vocation to love widely. And I really appreciate that. Uh, um, Shane Claiborne used to talk before he got married about uh, uh, celibates can be uh, sexually active in, in this sense of, of uh, you know, sex is hopefully ultimately about love and that it is a calling to love. And, you know, I think in a very fragmented society that marriage sometimes is seen as salvation because people do feel so lonely, so alienated, mm-hmm. um, that the solution is seen as finding that one perfect romantic partner and, and, you know, like all good lies, there's lots of truth in it. Like if you do find another good person, that can be great. But living communally, um, it's interesting because I live with in close proximities to some married couples and I see some really good marriages. But, you know, if you're being as close as I am, I realize also that they're not salvation as good as they are. Mm. Uh, they're, they have their struggles, uh, you know, life for all of us is so daily and often mundane. And, and so I end up realizing that, you know, all of us have our challenges and, uh, life is not so much about getting the perfect circumstances and the perfect partner as it is about what kind of character you have and whether you choose to receive what you have with gratitude and so, you know, being celibate, I do have some real freedoms and I have more time than a lot of people. And so I do get to have a really wide range of relationships and love widely and enjoy uh, a, a real diversity of friendships and travel and, um, you know, life is rich. And so, you know, it's I think, you know, I kind of wrapped it up there with a nice tidy bow and definitely life has not felt that way all the time. Um, You know, there's been times when I've really questioned celibacy, but I think it's kind of like marriage. I mean, you know, I, I don't think I would have gotten married and thought, oh, there will never be any struggles. I'll never question this choice. Uh, And it's been something similar in celibacy. But I I think, you know, marriage, you can think of as a curriculum, as a human being Mm. in in loving and and forgiving. And and I think celibacy, too, is its its own curriculum. All right. Halftime. This is when we open up the virtual guitar case, pass around the virtual collection plate. If you like what we're doing here... Think about throwing some money in. We do this because we love it. But we also love our families. The hours we put into this podcast are hours we owe to them. They freed us up to do this work. Help us give something back. Throw in a 20, throw in a dollar, it's all good. Just click on the Patreon link. You can make a one-time donation, or you can commit to something regular. 
Even something small but regular makes a big difference. Regular contributions mean a regular gig for this artist and this preacher. It lets us chase the dream and not the dollar. Enough said. Back to the reason you're here and we're here today. So, for for some folks that might be listening in and and, and getting anxious about some things, I want to uh, I want to make sure that we talk about the fact that so so far we've explored your story as a story of celibacy for a gay person being a legitimate and fruitful choice. You're quite clear in your in your writing that it's not a prescriptive choice for gay folks. And the other the other side of the comparison with with the Catholic reality is that um, you know when it when it does become the uh, the singular prescriptive choice for for gay folks, you know we, we know about some of the, the pathologies when when uh, when the priesthood becomes kind of this massive closet. Uh, that people join for reasons other than than a kind of genuine calling, but as a kind of a, a hideout, and uh, and then when their sexuality gets expressed in that in that hideout zone, uh, I mean the the collateral damage in Catholic parishes has been pretty massive uh, in terms of you know the, the scandals of sexual abuse and. Uh, and the cover-ups and uh, and the, the loss of trust of of priests and the priesthood today. So uh, yeah, so if you could just l- lay out you know for us like your sense of what you see as the the kind of breadth of pathways that should be available to to gay folks and some of the some of the shadows that emerge when when we uh, focus on this this kind of singular prescriptive option of of celibacy. Yeah, I think what you've laid out is is really one of the most compelling arguments for the affirming stance. If you read Catholic theology, such as Pope John Paul's theology of the body, I think one striking thing about it is just that it's so beautiful. And to me, it seems somewhat speculative, but you know, it coheres and, you know, in the Eastern Church they talk about beauty and truth being synonymous. And as you read it, Mm. it just seems so beautiful that it's hard to believe it's not true. But, you know, there have been studies of priests, and I'm forgetting his first name, but there's a guy named, last name Sipe, who's done studies of how many priests actually manage to to carry out the celibacy they commit to. And it's less than 10%. Wow. And, and so, you know, if the most committed, uh, most theologically informed, uh, most dedicated people can't live out this ethic, um, can that really be a true ethic? It just seems to mm. me something's wrong there that I I can't imagine a kind of God who would just set up this ethic that that nobody can can actually live out. I mean, with few exceptions. And and so, you know, I began to think, well, if if 
A committed relationship is a commitment to learn the art of love and to give oneself to learning how to love and learning how to accept love, which is its own uh, discipline. <laughs> that just seems to me so incredibly healthy and life-giving that I come down believing that, that that's got to be available to people. Mm. And so, you know, that's, that's one reason why I, I, I do end up being affirming of LGBT relationships. Tell us something about how your personal stance on that as, a, as an option for others and your choice of uh, celibacy for yourself relates to the, the particular journey with this difficult question in the church, as it is, it's difficult for, for many churches. It hasn't been easy for your own community. Yeah, how, how does your, your personal stance uh, fit into the story of, of this conversation at Church of the Sojourners? Mm. Uh, wow, that's a complex question. Um, yeah, I just feel like I'm truly, truly queer. <laughs> Like, I, I, I hardly fit uh, at, in my own church, in my own city, in my own skin, I think sometimes. But um, just I am affirming, um, and, and yet I am celibate. And there's, there's a lot, I guess, that could be said about that. But I guess part of what I'm trying to do is queer things up a bit and in, in this in this sense you know I, I i grew up in kind of a fundamentalist context and i've ended up seeing the religious impulse as the desire to feel superior to others with kind of the ultimate idea that if you're better than other people then you deserve to transcend death. Wow, and, and and that's a that's a complicated argument that I don't think I'll try and make in detail right now. But I do think as we look around, we just see this impulse everywhere. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And so the strange thing there's for, there's lots of folks that are wouldn't consider themselves religious uh, that would fit in in, in in under that category of of religiousness as, as you're talking about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so in my early twenties, I moved to San Francisco at the height of the AIDS crisis and wanted to get involved. And so there was this group at the time called act up that was engaging in actions to get drugs approved more quickly. And I completely believed in their work and, their role was crucial at a time when people were dying in, in droves. And so I completely applaud their work. But it was interesting, growing up in a fundamentalist context, you know, it was quite clear that the enemy was the abortionists, the homosexuals, and the secular humanists. And I almost felt like it just flipped. Like, it too was a very black and white world, in which we were the good guys and the enemies were conservative Christians, Ronald Reagan, and pro-lifers. Mm. Um, 
And and I just couldn't believe that worldview. Just, uh, you know, we're all more complex than that. The line of good and evil runs through each of us. And we're all trying to tell ourselves that we're superior to other people. And so in spite of being affirming, I, I hope that partly my life is about trying to also honor and receive the gifts of conservatives. And and I do think there's a lot of important perspectives that they offer. Um, just maybe one example being that you know, conservatives say that that the world is sacred. The the world was conceived in love. The mm. the universe is a personal place. It's not just mm. random. It's not just an accident. And as part of that sacredness, um, they say that sex is sacred. Mm. And you know, sometimes on the progressive side, an argument gets made. Well, Christians are so hung up on sex. Uh, it's just bodies rubbing against each other, creating pleasure. What's the big deal? Mm. And, Mm. you know, I think for any of us who have seen a baby born, Mm. uh, it's just such a miracle. Mm. And and sex is is part of that. Sex at its best can be this incredible coming together uh, in in the most intimate expression of love that, that human beings can pull off. And you know, if that's not sacred, then what is? You know, I just mm. feel like just this doom and bleakness and nihilism take over my soul when I entertain those kinds of thoughts. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I just think it's important to keep listening uh, to both sides and to grapple with the wisdom of people on all sides. We started off this conversation by talking about homosexuality as a gift, and as I'm listening, it strikes me that part of your gift and and a gift that I see with many of my gay and lesbian and transgender friends is that the rainbow people are the people who are continually born into the enemy camp mm-hmm. and grow up inside <laughs> the enemy camp. Yeah. Uh, and so your ability to hate the enemy is lost or, or, or is, is, is significantly depleted by knowing these people as your mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and cousins. And so then there's this, then, there, you know, your life project is, it's a peacemaking project from, from the beginning, if you're going to survive. Yeah. Uh, with your soul intact. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. I think, you know, we are family. Like, we, we get born into Dick Cheney's family. And, right, yeah. Know, we're everywhere, and uh, it's kind of surprising and joyful. Um, and, and you know, just a, as you say, as I think about my own family, a conservative Christian family, but with so many goods to share. I mean, just salt of the earth, amazing people who, as a result of a committed, faithful relationship to each other, have just released this bomb of goodness and blessing in the world. And you can't just turn your back on that and deny that. And so, 
you know, that's that's just part of what I've got to grapple with and account for. So in terms of articulating a, a stance on the quote issue, mm-hmm. you've you've come out uh, behind what some people call this third way approach. Mm-hmm. I have a question about that, but maybe just quickly yeah. lay, lay out wh- what that approach looks like. Well, it's a difficult approach. I mean, it's an approach where you try and actively welcome people on both sides. And so I know of one congregation that's trying to do this. So they would say, we completely welcome uh, same-sex couples and bless same-sex couples. But there's a couple things we're not going to do. We're not going to preach uh, an affirmative gospel and people who hold a traditional view don't necessarily have to show up at gay weddings. You know, we're going to try and hold a space for people who hold a traditional view. And and I realize that just sounds uh, oppressive and awful to, to some folks and uh, a violation of safe space. And, you know, as a gay person, I hear that. But I've, I've heard recently people talk about brave spaces. Hmm. And, and I think that's really intriguing. Just in that, in an affluent culture, we're so addicted to comfort. And I feel like to get to truth, we have to be able to enter into conflict and live in relation to people who significantly disagree with us. And so that kind of space may not always feel safe. And so it's a call for us to be brave and to build bridges to people who really are different, who are other, to step out of our comfortable silos and and be in relationship with the other. And, and I think just in thinking about the church, you know, I, I don't think the world is kind of looking to the church like, what is the right answer on LGBTQ relationships? You know, like, like we're just breathlessly waiting for you to tell <laughs> us, uh, you know, what's right. But, you know, in this really polarized political and social climate, you know, if people who are really, really different could love each other and live in unity anyway, well, that that might be interesting. Mm. That might be intriguing. And so, yeah, that's why I am interested in kind of this third way approach. It seems to me that if, uh, like to enter into that brave space, the sense of I think we need, we all need some sense of safety, but mm-hmm. it seems to me the the sense of safety has to come from somewhere else, mm. uh, rather than kind of prior agreement to, mm. you know, mm-hmm. what what the rules are here mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. Do you have some Do you have some thoughts on where where that comes from? If one is go- like, it seems to me there, it seems to imply some kind of spiritual resources. To enter into that space in a way that, you know, to be able to stand in that space and fearlessly and bravely. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I, th- I feel sometimes just so appalled at my own fragility, and you know sometimes we you hear people talk about white fragility, and I don't know if it's a a version of that, but I tend to think of it as just my own ego, and you know it shows up in that if I hear somebody make a criticism of me. Oh my, I can dwell on that for a week. You know, I'll rehearse it. I'll Mm. lay awake at night. Somebody pays me a a compliment and five minutes later I've forgotten it, you know? Mm. And, and I just think this is in some ways the human condition. It's that threat that maybe I'm not superior. Maybe I'm just one of the herd. Mm. And that, that feels really daunting. And so, you know, Christians do talk about that we have to be grounded in God's love. And that's a primary discipline. And hopefully, if we can be in that place, then we can hear criticism. uh, We can be brave. We can ultimately, hopefully, relate to others with the mercy and grace that, that we believe God has shown towards each of us. And that's, you know, that's a long journey. I, I, I'm not there yet, but I think that's, that's the right road to be on. Mm. As I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that there's a kind of, there's a sort of a parallel process of deep relationship with the divine lover and deep relationship with the human other, mm-hmm. which as I understand it in traditional Christian theology is, is exactly how we understand these things to proceed, that, that, mm-hmm. that the two are, are mysteriously entwined. And I, I know a little bit about the, the church that you were referencing earlier. That's a place that has practiced, you know, deep commitment to bearing one another's burdens and relational commitments to one another. One thing I've wondered about the approach that you advocate is, is this approach actually possible in settings where there isn't that depth of commitment to one another? Yeah, that's, that's an important question. Robert Bella was a sociologist at Berkeley, and he and some other folks wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. Oh, yeah. And he talks about affinity groups that we don't have thick relations. We just have people who enjoy knitting together or uh, people who enjoy Gulfstream trailers or, or whatever. And, you know, the point of these groups is to show up and feel like your comrades. Uh huh. But it's all based on, on comfort and wow and feeling mutually reinforced and so as soon as you're confronted with difference then that's a threat and it falls apart and so yeah i don't i don't think this kind of practice could happen in a place where relationships are superficial i think uh, i was talking about reba place fellowship and they they have a lifelong commitment to each other uh they're almost like a monastic order 
And, you know, it was so interesting talking with them. They were having this conversation about uh, LGBT inclusion. And I would sometimes ask them, do you think you're going to make it? I mean, is this going to tear, tear you all apart? Mm. And they would kind of say, ah, you know, <laughs> you know, we had the whole struggle over women in leadership and we finally affirmed women pastors. And then we had the whole struggle over, you know, could divorced people remarry? And, oh, we, we're just veterans of these wars and we're committed to each other. And, and here was a people who had, mm. you know, gone through pain and difficulty together and mm. had learned the practices of, of forgiveness and perseverance with one another. And, you know, they had developed this capacity to be in conflict and yet not have it overthrow them. And, you know, I think that's, it's almost the antidote to our current political and social situation. Is that the pearl of the kingdom? Is that the pearl of great price? <laughs> it's sure part of it, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's another way of talking about the art of love, right? Hollywood tells us it's just this uh, infatuation, which, you know, scientists... Tell us it's it's a little bit like being on crack. It's all this uh, dopamine and oxytocin going crazy in our brains. But you know, I think real love is that bearing with each other through difficulty and, and being friends even in the the difficulty. Hmm. So one of the little habits uh, that we've fallen into at the ferment which kind of tips our hand completely that we're whatever it is we're doing it it's nothing objective is uh we we extend a blessing uh hmm. to our guests and uh typically I've written something up ahead of time I'm going to have to improvise this but if it's all right I'd like to first of all thank you Tim for just a journey into something deep and true and beautiful and and friendly hmm. and uh yeah if it's all right i'll just say a blessing please thanks divine lover i give you thanks for this friend this teacher this servant leader who is articulating a theology of the body the body of christ and the human body Thank you for a glimpse of a body made whole in this in this conversation and in this friend. Bless his work, bless his vocation, bless his community. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 All right. Peace be with you, brother. And also with you. It makes all kinds of sense If you clench your fist That I clench mine more That I close my door We all understand If I raise my hand Back at someone 
else to protect myself. But what do we do with our holy fool? What do we do with our holy fool? And when my God is mocked and my cheeks get hot, I can mock right back to stay right on track and laugh at your own crude certitude. Cause I can't be sure if you are too. What do we do with our holy fool? What do we do with our holy fool? I want this plot of mine to align with a triumphant march. The changes hearts, but what I often mean is for others to see with the kind of sight that would see I'm right. But what do we do with our holy fool? What do we do? With our holy food. And if Easter can't be the loser's chant, and I've forgotten what this is all about, then my hallelujah, maybe my hallelujah. Hallelujah is a violent shout. What do we do with our holy fool? Who hangs between our differences over what needs to be saved? What do we do with our holy Whose foolishness outpours the heavens into the wisdom of our grace. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to this ancient holy. We are the ferment. You are too. Thanks for listening. Until next time, breathe consciously and with love. Eat consciously and with love. Tend the creation. Attend the divine. And name the real consciously and with love. Peace and all good. <laughs>